Hi everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights, the podcast, Season 2, Episode 59. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. This week we'll be featuring an interview with author Barbara Van Driel, a former agent with the FBI. And Barbara will be speaking with us about her memoir, It Never Happened, in which she chronicles her eight-year career as a special agent in the FBI, exposing the dysfunctional culture of one of the country's most formidable bureaucracies. So that promises to be a really interesting interview, so stay with us for that. Before we get to it, I'd like to tell you about a book I've been reading this week, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, written by 27 psychiatrists and mental health experts who assess a president. And it is brought together by Bandy Lee, MD, who was the organizer of the Yale Duty to Warn conference. It's a fascinating book. I'll read to you from the back of it. There are those who still hold out hope that this president can be prevailed upon to listen to reason and curb his erratic behavior. Our professional experience would suggest otherwise. We collectively warn that anyone as mentally unstable as this man simply should not be entrusted with the life and death powers of the presidency. I can tell you it is both a fascinating and a terrifying read. I do encourage you to look it up. You know, if you're interested at all in psychology or in psychiatric assessments, it really is something that you should be familiar with. And it's a good read in terms of the layout as well. So that, again, is The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And I highly recommend it. Not everyone will be interested in psychological analyses, but for those of us who are, it really is a worthwhile read. So now I'd like to bring you my interview with Barbara Van Driel. Please give her a big Dead to Rights welcome. So for our listeners, I'd like to welcome Barbara Van Driel, the author of It Never Happened, FBI Negligence and Duplicity Revealed from the Inside Out, which became available in paperback October 4th, 2018. Barbara, welcome to the show. It's good to have you. Thank you, Donna. It's wonderful to be with you. And what can you tell us about your book? I believe that you served as an agent from 1983 until, what was the year that you you left? I left in early May of 1991. So a little bit more than eight years, about eight years and three months. Okay, so you had a pretty good exposure there. Yes. And where where did you serve primarily? Well, the, the Bureau policy at that time, I was recruited while I was at college in Kansas, so it's actually done about 10 years of my life, starting with the recruitment process at college. And then you go to Quantico, um, that's in Virginia, and after 16 weeks training, you, re- you returned at that time to your office of origin, where you entered the bureau. For me, it was Kansas City. Mm-hmm. So it was a six-month stint there, and then you know each, each director sets the transfer policy. So that's what it was back then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. Um, now, Barbara, um, what types, uh, I, I'm trying to ask what department you would have been in. I'm not sure the right way to phrase that, but um, what was the primary focus of your investigative work? Well, Donna, uh, the way the Bureau decides where to assign agents is slightly random. Uh, so when I came out of Quantico and I was assigned in Kansas City, Missouri, I started on a criminal squad. 
And that was for a two-month period where I did some training. And uh, when you read my book, you'll see that the training agent, um, I uh, affectionately refer to him as the sheriff. So there's a little description of him in the book. Uh, he was quite misogynistic, uh, criticized me a lot, and uh, we came to the agreement that I would be better off on a different squad. So I went on my second squad there, and I did background investigations. That's people working uh, different departments within the federal government, including and also including the White House, mm-hmm. and people who wanted to be FBI agents. And there I was very successful because I had a wonderful supervisor who was very pro-women. Mm-hmm. But but when you bump into these agents, as really my book is filled with, and or supervisors who did not want to work with women, um, it could be could be trouble for yeah, sure. And that was still really, I'm old enough to know that in the 80s, that was still a real serious problem. I mean, it still is. I'm not aware of it ever having been really resolved. But I think that people are a little more aware of the problem now. Mm-hmm. And well, uh, try to... Yeah, try to oh, counter it to a greater degree, I think. Right. Well, one of the problems was um, Mr. Hoover did not want women as agents. And and by the way, that's another conversation. And frankly, I understood, even being a woman, why that was a problem. It was a problem on several levels. I, I don't really address that in the book, but that's another conversation. How they implemented, how they brought women into the Bureau at the time. The men I worked with, they all had come into the Bureau under Hoover. These men would be between, say, 45 and 55. So they had been in the Bureau 20 years plus. And mm-hmm. that culture had been established for decades. And they liked their good old boy system, frankly. Sure, sure they and, did. You know, and a girl coming on the squad, it somehow just disturbed the, the, the balance of power for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yes, the balance of power is a good way to describe most of these situations, um, because they do have a lot to do with balance of power. But we're digressing a little bit. Um, uh, the Cold War was in full force when you first joined the FBI. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about how that colored your work, too. Well, interestingly, um, uh, handling counterintelligence, frankly, I feel has always been a problem for the Bureau. We're sort of seeing with these recent events with Mr. Strzok how um, there's a form of unaccountability, if you will. That's a little bit complicated in this discussion to describe. I do address that in the book. But I knew early on, Donna, that I wanted to go into counterintelligence. I, I, I didn't desire to be in the criminal world for a variety of reasons, uh, but it, I seemed, it seemed to me that doing counterintelligence would be a little bit more of an academic world, uh, certainly would not be uh, rough and tumble. Mm-hmm. It, would be, it would be more nuanced. So mm-hmm. because I, I, uh, I took the test and I did well in the foreign language aptitude, I quickly let people know that I would be open to studying a foreign language. And my book details how uh, I was approached in my second office and told, you know, the president literally would, would send out these requests via the Department of Justice. It's time for us to have more work done in, in that area. So mm-hmm. frankly, I worked primarily in the counterintelligence area my entire career, once I elected to go to the foreign language school. That is fascinating. And what yeah. languages did you master? Uh, I decided I had the choice of studying Chinese, Korean, Arabic, or Russian. 
And for a variety of reasons, I chose Russian. And I think it was a good choice. I, I, I still go to Russia. I was able to go to Russia after I left the Bureau in the 90s, had nothing to do with my career. And then recently, the last two, three years, I've been traveling back there again. So I, I love it. I still do very well in the language. That's fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Wow. I, I really, I, yeah, I admire I devoted myself. It was yeah. the toughest thing I've ever done academically. It was a very intense program. It wasn't like college. It was a complete eight hours a day plus five, six hours a night of homework. For, mm-hmm. for quite a long time, yeah. Yeah, it would be, because Russian is quite different. It doesn't uh, necessarily follow all of the same rules as the Western languages. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I tried to study Chinese Mandarin with my children oh for a number of years, and um, it was it was an exercise in humility, because I'd always <laughs> considered myself kind of good at, at picking up languages. Um, but any language that really does not conform to the same rule structure as your mother tongue, if you haven't learned it when you're very young, I think the obstacles are great. And not insurmountable, because I've got so many Chinese friends who have learned English, so obviously it can be done, you know? Yes. I, I unfortunately, or fortunately, I was 30 when I started, and I literally, Donna, got there. I didn't even know the alphabet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew, I didn't realize how difficult it would be. I had never encountered anything like that. But my nature is to be all in, and mm-hmm. and I really devoted myself to my studies, realizing that if I didn't do really well, I would never be able to use the language. Yeah. And, yeah. and I and I did well, and so I'm happy. That's something that was a great gift to me that all these years later, I still can use. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Really, and it can't really be wonderful. taken away. And thirty yeah. is still within that young enough. Um, I know that the psychologists argue this, but truthfully, I found in my 30s, I was still quite receptive to things. When I was trying to study Mandarin with my kids, though, I was already in my 40s, and um, it was getting difficult, you know, <laughs> it was getting difficult. Um, we did, we did cover a lot of ground. My son studied for eight years, and my daughter studied wow. for about um, about six. And uh, Did they end she... up using the language? Did they get to go to China and things like that? No, he's 20. He's still in university and she's 16. She's still in high school. Um, But she is from China. So one day she will probably want to go back. But she had a lot less interest in it than our our son did. So Hmm. she she was the one that rebelled and said, enough of this. We don't want to do this anymore. (laughs) Well, the thing that I found interesting, again, a little bit off the topic, but not really. uh, You know, we're women and we like to talk about how you get more intelligent, right, more competent, more professional. Uh, studying a foreign language is, is like studying music. And there's uh-huh. been a lot of research done. And I can tell you, it changed my brain. Yes. I, I mean, I, I have been able, even to this day, to learn anything, to study anything I want to. It's quite uh-huh. amazing. Uh-huh. It rewired my brain. Um, yes. And I can memorize things still. I, mm-hmm. I I still study the language a little bit. I'm getting ready to go back. I'm actually going for uh, two weeks to Chechnya, which is mm-hmm. the area I've been going to in the last couple of years. And so I get ready for it, but I just dive right in. And boy, it's just like you and I speaking right now. Yeah. It's yeah. wonderful. It's a yeah, wonderful it's, feeling mentally. There's a muscle memory in the brain, but there is more than that. There's... um the ability to assimilate information, which if you're a lifelong student of anything, 
your brain learns how to assimilate information mm -hmm. and it doesn't ever really forget that barring any disease, you know, mm -hmm. barring any of the natural things that can get in our way. But um, right. as long as we remain healthy, we remain capable of assimilating information. Right. So, yeah, isn't yeah. that a great joy? I mean, that's one of the things I, I really love about life. I love yes. learning and yes. uh, keeping my brain fertile, keeping my health good. It's so and, good you know, I think also, you know, that, that was, um, you know, part of my personality, which so suited me to the Bureau, which made it rather, I mean, you know, a tragedy. I mean, if, as you read the book, you realize the disappointments I'm encountering because I was brought up, uh, I came from a family that I was encouraged to do well. And I, and I really resonated with fidelity, bravery, integrity, and mm -hmm. wanting to do well. And I found that this bureaucracy, even going back to the 80s, was already very compromised in that sense. It, mm -hmm. it did not encourage hard work. It encouraged the sort of, you know, play the game, Barb. And mm -hmm. that's really ultimately, when people ask me, you know, you can see the different events that happened. But ultimately, I said, do I really want to make this effort constantly pushing, pushing, when the hard work I do is really not appreciated? Mm -hmm. It really wasn't very discouraged, actually. Do you think that's symptomatic of almost any bureaucracy, in particular government bureaucracies? I absolutely do. And yes. how naive I was. I, you know, I've often, you know, people have said to me, of course, Donna, you know, you were so naive. And I said, well, you could say that on one hand. But I met that recruiter. I was still 25 years old. I spent a lot of time in the process of being recruited in the Bureau. I think that someone should have said a little something to me about the nature of the organization. Uh, you don't let someone just walk in and think, oh, it's like, you know, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. And we all work hard and ooh, rah, rah. Mm -hmm. uh, and besides so, which, who goes into law enforcement, really, Barbara? I mean, because to my mind, people who go into law enforcement, no matter what they come out the other end as, they go in with a desire for for justice and, and um, truth and all the good noble things. I think most do. Some right? go in, of course, in some levels of law enforcement simply because their families were in law enforcement or they feel they don't have any other skills. But I think the vast majority would go in with some sense of nobility, which, yes, we can mm -hmm. now call it naivete, you know. It's naivete, yes. but yeah, and, and I wasn't going to have that removed from me because, you know, frankly, um, I never had a bad day working with the public. I, I enjoyed everything I did. I'm mm -hmm. not the kind of person who gets bored or thinks things are trivial. I can, mm -hmm. I can, if you study the foreign language like I did and like you did, you understand why children do so well in certain things. They love repetition. They mm -hmm. don't tire of it. And mm -hmm. I studied a lot of music. I'm still, I study classical piano. That's a lot of repetition. Yes. And to be a good agent you really have to be willing to kind of, quote unquote, lower yourself to that level of, I have to be super attentive to all the little details. Cases are redundant, especially mm -hmm. in the counterintelligence world. You know, what are, we, what are we doing? We're throwing out a gigantic net through these mm -hmm. little cases in the event that we find someone who is committing espionage in our country, you know, mm -hmm. from another country. And- that's dreary, quote unquote, work, unless mm -hmm. you understand the big picture and that you truly enjoy that minutia. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of the problem in recruiting people, especially for the counterintelligence world. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I talk to a lot of writers, in particular crime writers, because crime is my um, my genre. And uh, it sounds like you're describing shoe leather. I mean, just old-fashioned <laughs> kind of shoe right. leather. Right. Do you think that's a good description for it? That's cute. Yes, it is. And, uh, you know, when I first got on my squad in Houston, uh, this is kind of funny, Donna, because I didn't know anything about how cases were run in counterintelligence. You know, I'd had a few months there, six months in Kansas City with the sensitive background investigations in some of those criminal cases. But getting on counterintelligence was its own world. And this is where I began to really see the laziness of agents. Just Mm -hmm. because of the way they opened the cases, um, the agents were, well, you know, this doesn't amount to anything. I said, really? I I think it does. I think it amounts to the security of our country. Uh, So I right away was in a philosophical clash with Mm -hmm. these senior agents. And as you read the book, you see these things, you sort of laugh. But boy, uh, I really wasn't laughing at the time. I was sort of alarmed. And, you know, as you have, I'm sure you understand also, one individual doesn't change the culture. You either join the culture or you're up against it all the time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. You're hit on something very real, and it's a real lesson throughout life. And um, my husband and I often have thought, because we're getting a little older now, we're getting closer to retirement. We live in Canada. And if we had gone into public service of any kind, if we'd gone into government work, which either of us could have done, Mm -hmm. you know, we'd be retiring with pretty substantial pensions and things like that. But neither one of us would have been able to tolerate the bureaucracy. And Mm -hmm. we know that about ourselves. I mean, um, someone very close to me worked for a very short time in a government agency. And just to give a quick uh, uh, sort of uh, something that people will understand, but it doesn't really mean anything. Um, She was told early on, we need this report immediately. It has to be done by tomorrow. So she stayed up all night preparing this report, put it in her boss's tray where it sat for six months unopened (laughs) you know the bureau has all these phrases and one of them you're making me think of a job put off is a job half done (laughs) so often they would (laughs) say that oh it's gotta be and then they the next day come and two days later and everyone's looking the other way yeah you don't need to do that you know maybe it'll never come up again at all yeah. <laughs> so yeah. there. Well, she knew, Canadian like I know, that government work, yeah, government work was not for her. And uh, I really don't think I could have survived the kinds of trials that you're talking about in your book, the bureaucracy and the, you know, wanting to do things and being faced with obstacles. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, and the other thing is they make you take an oath. And I think that's good. You know, you take an oath. Um, it's a profession. It's it's really more than having a job. And you're, you understand that when you take your, your oath, you're obligated for three years. Mm-hmm. If you don't serve three years, they give you a black mark. Mm-hmm. You leave the bureau with, Ugh, you know, you didn't fulfill your initial obligation. Sure. Then, um, if I can say they seduced me early on with studying the foreign language. I was supposed to be in the Bureau three years until I was allowed to study a foreign language. But President Reagan sent out the word, obviously, went to the DOJ, we need people to study Russian. Mm -hmm. Anyone who's capable, 
So my, my supervisor said, hey, Barb, uh, you can go in January. This was October. Mm-hmm. And I said, but I've only been an agent mm-hmm. a bit, what, a year and a half? Oh, that's okay. They're going to waive that requirement. Mm-hmm. Problem was, Donna, again, I was signing up for another four years. Mm-hmm. That was my obligation. Yeah. You know, yeah. and not, not only financially, but morally. You know, the American citizens paid for me to go to school. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't have to work. So, you know, these things play on your conscience. So each time I made a further commitment, I said to myself, I have to fulfill this. That was my own personal ethic. I really yeah. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you do. And you do. I mean, when you make these commitments in life, you do need to. Now, just to get down to the nitty gritty about mm-hmm. the book. Um, yes. You've talked about the culture of negligence, duplicity, and abuse. Use. What kind of feedback have you had from your former colleagues about your book? Well, interestingly, um, anyone that I've addressed in the book, I haven't heard from. The people don't know how to be in touch with me. But I'll mm-hmm. tell you an interesting thing. I won't mention any names. Um, first of all, you can see in the book, I had to use all pseudonyms except for mm-hmm. mine and answer. Mm-hmm. Um, through a series of events in the last couple of years, I, I've been able to be acquainted with an agent who retired took his full pension. And, um, I took, I got the nerve in the fall to say, Oh, would you, would you be willing to read my manuscript and consider an endorsement? Oh, the person was super enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. So read the book and sent an electronic copy, of course. And Donna, I don't hear anything for a day or two. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not stupid, but uh, I said, okay, I'll give him the benefit out of the doubt. So I finally sent a text message and said, so, oh, I get this big, long text. Mm. Well, you know, mm. I, I feel for you. And if there's any justice in the world, uh, your your voice will get out there. Your story will be there. But I can't give you an endorsement. Mm. That's going to be money out of mm. my pocket. This person is a, is a talking head, gets mm. on different uh, mm-hmm. programs. That's why I don't want to mention who it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, said, no, mm. I would not give you an endorsement because it's my bread and butter. Mm-hmm. carrying the water for the bureau mm-hmm. and knowing what he's saying is not truthful. Mm-hmm. So isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. The bureau hasn't changed and we've had conversations mm-hmm. and the stories, he, I wouldn't even tell you the stories he's told me. I would be embarrassed to say them on air. Mm-hmm. They're, they're very raw. Mm-hmm. So I know that the culture hasn't changed. Uh, there mm-hmm. are more women and, you know, minorities now, you know, making the grade and getting ahead and going into management and things, but the culture is even more declined. It, it's it sounds it's, pretty ugly. It's it's difficult to change the roots of something that is really firmly rooted, and um, right. doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Um, you know, I think which comes back to what you're talking. Yeah, they need a radical upheaval. But at the same time, at the same time, even slow working can help. You know, even bringing in the diversity more women in management, more people of color in management, all of that can help, you know. Um, but it's it's really difficult when something is firmly rooted. And as you say, a lot of it came out of the Hoover generation, which right. um, for anybody yeah. in our age bracket knows how how manipulative that whole era right. was. And you know, the you other know, thing was um, Hoover demanded perfection. And, and you and I know that there are mistakes that will always be made in all aspects of life. And so th- the Bureau's attitude was, we don't address anything that's a boo-boo. 
because we can't allow for it. So that sets up when you're not allowed to fail. In my childhood, I was allowed to fail. I wasn't criticized because I didn't do well. You know, my father would say, well, Bobby, he called me Bobby. um, Let's talk about how you felt about that, why you weren't applying yourself. And he was a good psychologist and Mm -hmm. did it with firmness, but very lovingly. That's not the bureau culture. They have to hide things Mm -hmm. that are blues. How did Bob Hansen, you know, that's something I write about a little bit. How did he get through a career of 20 something years spying for the Soviets and not get discovered? Yeah, that's, you know, and when this all came out after I had left the bureau, was I shocked? Not as shocked as you think I should be, because I saw the way he ran our squad there in uh, in New York City. And not that I thought he was spying, but I knew that he had all kinds of security infractions he was allowing, even promoting. And if you questioned it, oh boy, I mean, gun to your head. Oh, Don't question yeah. anything. Yeah. We got a good we got a good gig going on here, Barb, and we don't need anybody yeah. to interfere with it. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and that is maybe that that defines for our listeners what I was saying earlier about my husband and I making the choice to stay in private industry, and um, you know, because private industry you've got a has a, a, a an unwritten mantra that if you're not making mistakes, you're not doing anything. Right. You, know? mm-hmm. you right. can't be productive without mistakes mistakes and um, finger pointing is pointless unless it's it's designed to correct the initial mistake you know because only correcting the mistake moves you forward right I mean how do you correct something that you don't aren't willing to uncover right exactly there is a lot of you know there's a lot of history with the bureau so you get in and and you sit around. I mean, I quickly stopped sitting around having coffee with senior agents because it was like a, a gab fest complain situation. Mm-hmm. Everybody complaining about the things that they were unhappy about. You know, frankly, Donna, this was just all laziness, you know, contributing mm-hmm. to the negligence as opposed to let's be positive. Let's do mm-hmm. things to push forward the quality of our work mm-hmm. and not be a part of the system. You yeah. know, it's, it's it's one person at a time who who elects to say, I won't play that game. Yeah. But that bureaucracy was so strong, and the the encouragement to just go along and underperform, just realize how you can get in here, you get your pay grades automatically. By the way, as far as performance ratings, a supervisor, this is again part of the culture. If he were to give an agent a less than what they call satisfactory performance rating, that reflects on him and mm-hmm. his ability to go up in the mm-hmm. system. Now, how smart is that? That's not a good way to set yeah. up the system. So yeah. our bell curve was shifted over. So an FD student, quote unquote, was actually getting a B. You see, oh. you can't get a bad grade. Oh, and so mm-hmm. people like myself and there were other, we're getting A pluses. Not that mm-hmm. we weren't A students, but if you shift that bell curve, it's not really legitimate when they give mm-hmm. you the exceptional rating, right? Yeah. Because who's yeah. on the other end? Yeah. The people yeah. who don't work are getting what they call fully satisfactory. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and of course, you don't want to be like a crybaby paying attention to other people. But pretty mm-hmm. soon you'll see in the book the supervisor saying, hey, Barb, you know, can you help me out with these cases? I can't get Joe Schmo to work. And you go, hey, boss. Uh, do something about it. And then, 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 we got to work around the people who don't mm. want to work. Why? Mm-hmm. Well, that that plays into 
what will happen to him as a supervisor on his career path. Wow. It's, wow. It was it was just the system, and it was really heavy, as I said, in the counterintelligence. You know, counterintelligence, you don't go to trial. It's not those kind of cases. Mm. It's really under the radar, mm. which yeah. is why I really, I've written a little bit about this um, on my website, things that I posted since the book um, was published. You know, maybe considering a domestic counterintelligence organization of people who really want to do that with mm -hmm. a foreign language requirement, a very different kind of background, and take it out of the Bureau, which, you know, back 100 years ago, the Bureau wasn't about counterintelligence. The, the Congress added these statutes as mm -hmm. time went by. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't the focus of the Bureau early on to be involved in this world. And so I it was never mentioned to me, Donna, that there was the possibility of working that kind of work when I was being recruited. You know, you're thinking it's guns and badges and running out there and, like you say, you know, shoe leather, gumshoe type, type of work, and not for, the subtlety. Not from right. Simulus Jr., yeah. Right, yeah. right. What we all think of the standard. But there's mm -hmm. a whole world that the Bureau had to manage. And frankly, they did it very poorly, in my opinion, and from my experience. And for our listeners, you mentioned your website. It's www.barbaravandriel.com. And the book is titled It Never happened so look for that um, at major retailers FBI negligence and duplicity revealed by Barbara Van Driel from the inside out which is just an excellent title and the oh, cover you. is just stunning Barbara thank you did very you like much that? did you like the way I chose a, a redacted concept I did and red. yeah mm -hmm. I did and I have to tell you red's my favorite color anyway so <laughs> <laughs> That's no, it's a gorgeous. Thank you so much. Gorgeous cover. It's very attractive. I really encourage people to go and look for it. Um, it's it also available by Barbara Bender. Mm -hmm. It's available, of course, at Amazon, which is yes. you know, probably what everyone loves to shop these days, right? Easy. Yes, yes, exactly. Easy peasy. And there it is in Kindle or paperback. So it's a very easy buy, and it looks like a great read. I really recommend it. Thank you very much for joining us, Barbara. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Don. It's my pleasure. It's, it's great to have a professional law, law enforcement person on the line with us because so many of our listeners and uh, interviewees are crime writers. So that's kind of really fascinating. Thanks so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it, Donna. Let it rot. I'd like to thank Barbara Vandriel for joining us today on the Dead to Rights podcast. Are you a published crime writer, either true crime or fiction? Would you like to be interviewed on Dead to Rights? If so, please contact me at Carrick Publishing at rogers.com. And in the subject line, please say Dead to Rights interview. And I'd love to hook up with you. You can always contact either myself, Donna Carrick, or my husband, Alec Carrick, on Facebook, on Twitter, or through the Carrick Publishing at Rogers.com email address. On Facebook, we're known as Donna Carrick, Alex Carrick with an X, or Carrick Publishing, or Dead to Rights. On Twitter, my handle is at Donna underscore Carrick. You can also reach at Alex underscore Carrick, at Dead to Rights Pod, or at Carrick Pub. 
All music featured on Dead to Rights, the podcast, has been composed and performed by Ted Carrick. And you can find out more about Ted's music at his YouTube channel, Ted Carrick Music. Be sure to join us next week when we bring you our interview with Howard Levine, author of Last Gasp. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.